it's 2021. People are learning science in so many different ways than just a traditional bachelor's degree, right? Uh, people learn through their own independent work. Um, that and, and I think there's a lot more to the job than just knowing the science, right? Welcome to Sidebars, Kilpatrick Townsend's limited podcast series focused on women in patent law. I'm April Isaacson, a patent litigator and partner in the San Francisco office. And I'm Kim Davis, a patent prosecutor and partner in the Atlanta office. We're here to discuss the gender gap in the patent bar and have candid conversations with female patent practitioners on their career paths. Welcome back to Sidebars. I'm April Isaacson. In this episode, Kim and I have the absolute pleasure of interviewing Mary Hannon, the woman who started the public conversation about the gender gap in the patent bar and inspired this podcast. Mary had a footnote in her article saying, I welcome any comments and or discussion and gave her each email address, which is why I reached out to her. I just did a cold reach out to her via email. She got back to me in less than a day, I believe. And as a nice Midwestern woman, apologize for not getting back to me a little bit quicker than that. So I thought that was just great. Uh, Mary is currently a law student at DePaul University. And in the fall, she will be joining Sidley Austin as an associate in the IP litigation group. She is the author of The Patent Bar Gender Gap, Expanding the Eligibility Requirements to Foster Inclusion and Innovation in the U.S. Patent System, which was published in IP Theory in the fall of 2020. In October 2020, Law360 published an article entitled, USPTO is Institutionally Biased Against Women, Study Says, Naming Mary and Her Peace. In December 2020, Senators Hirono, Tillis, and Coons sent a letter to the director of the USPTO concerning, quote, the gender gap among patent practitioners specifically referencing Mary and quoting her piece that states, quote, qualified women are unnecessarily excluded from membership in the patent bar, as well as talking about various statistics that were set forth in her piece. In January 2021, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office director responded to the senator's letter, indicating that he is asking the USPTO to evaluate the issue. And in March 2021, the Federal Register published a request for comments by the USPTO to propose changes to the eligibility requirements to sit for the patent bar. Mary Hannon, welcome to Sidebars. Thank you, April. I'm happy to be here. We will be discussing your excellent work, but first I wanted to ask you a question about what made you pivot from science to law? Well, I think that's a little bit of a long story. And I actually, Kim, I was listening to your episode and I was telling April that I related a lot to your kind of your path and kind of how you got into science originally. Touch on that, I'm sure at some point. But yeah, but I, I guess when I, I was working at um, a chemical company in the northern suburbs shortly after receiving my master's in chemistry, um, I worked there for about two years or so total. I started out as an intern in their agriculture group. They manufacture surfactants and other commodity chemicals. Uh, so I started out there working on pesticide formulations. Nothing is super exciting, but, you know, work in the lab, traditional formulation work. And then later I transitioned into their personal care group. So I was working on shampoos and body soaps and hand washes and 
kind of fun, a lot more fun, tangible application of science, we'll say. And while I was there, I also started adjuncting at DePaul University, doing teaching some undergraduate organic chemistry and general chemistry labs. I just started kind of realizing that I just kind of fell into that position and started to realize that I was a lot more passionate about talking about science and educating others about science than I was about doing the science um, in the lab day in, day out. And part of my job at that chemical company was to kind of educate the sales teams and the business teams about the different chemistries and how they work and the different products and how you could use the chemicals. So I was a lot more passionate about that side of the business than I was about doing the science. But at that point, I kind of was contemplating, okay, I had a friend who kind of followed a similar path as me. He did a bachelor's and master's program in chemistry, and then he went on to do um, IP law. So that was in the back of my mind. I was like, okay, that's an option. Um, I also was interested in doing maybe an MBA, doing a kind of the business side or doing a JD MBA. I kind of didn't really know where I was going to fall. So I started looking for technical specialist positions. I think I found this, my friend who, I, I still can't remember exactly how I figured out that that was a job that I could potentially do. I think it was probably a little tip from my friend who went into the field and he kind of knew of these positions. So um, I started looking for those types of roles and found one one day on, I think, Law 360 for the firm I ultimately joined. So I applied and I interviewed and I didn't get it that time around. That was, I think, October of 2015, I want to say, fall of 2015. But I stayed in contact with some of the partners and attorneys that I interviewed with because we kind of made a personal connection during the interview. Um, and we'd have lunches over the next year or so. And then about a year or a year and a half later, he reached out to me and say, said, hey, we have a position opening. Turns out the person that they initially hired the first time I interviewed had left. So that position opened up again. And they called me back in and I interviewed and I got that position then. So I le that's when I left industry working as a chemist and moved into law as a technical specialist. And there's a couple of things I just want to tee it off before I know Kim's going to want to ask some questions. There's some similarities I'm seeing here. You know, uh, people who maybe don't necessarily enjoy working in the lab, but love the science. Kim and I are certainly similarly situated to that. Um, and also, you know, just some of the opportunities you had to work with other people uh, that are non-scientists non like Kim did. Um, so I'd love for you and Kim to have a bit of a dialogue about tech specs and some of those types of things, because there's certain similarities there. Mary, so first of all, I, I have to share with the listeners what I said to you when I first logged on and saw your face. I'm in awe, first of all. I feel like we have a celebrity in our midst. You have. <laughs> that, that's what I told her. I, I said, yeah. I feel like we landed the, low, the Oprah interview. This, this, <laughs> this is, it has to be the highlight. I bet it'll be the highlight of the season. When we do a recap, mark my words, this will be the episode that I'm like, but remember when we had Mary. So, <laughs> so I just need to first say and just reemphasize what April teed up with you inspired this entire podcast. Like that's huge, right? That's crazy. For, for, to, to read your note, to see the response that you received, and then for our team to get with us and say, guys, what are we going to do? Mary has issued a call to action. Now what are you going to do to follow suit? And for us to be more than willing to do it, I, I mean, I, again, 
celebrity. We have her. Well, here. thank you. That I feel like it's such an overstatement, but I appreciate it. And it's, you know, like I was saying, it was completely unexpected and not intentional. But but you know what? To me, as someone who's 26 years ahead of you in my career, seeing you as a 30-year-old and what you've accomplished already, and you haven't even started as a lawyer yet. It's really just phenomenal to Kim's point. Thank you. Thank you. So, so Mary, um, I want to ask one question, one I'm going to save for later, because I think it relates more to your note when we dig into that a little bit deeper. But I want to bring you back to the fall of 2015, when you first applied and didn't get the position, right? So remember that episode where I talked about the failures, but how you learn from those. To tell me, and uh, the end result is what I'm thinking in my mind. I'm going to hear you say it was for my good for this to happen. Can you speak to us a little bit and encourage our listeners about how you were able to still muster up the strength to strengthen those relationships with those who interviewed you? Because that's huge that they called you first when it didn't work out with the other person. Yeah, you know, obviously it sucks to ever be denied a position or something you were really looking forward to. But yeah, you're exactly right that that extra year or year and a half I had at the chemical company was huge. I'll just call it Stepin. It's a little bit easier to just say the name of the company. So I was there for another you know year and a half. And in that time, I, I'm trying to remember the timeline exactly. Because I think when I interviewed, I was still in that intern role. And so then when I went back, I ultimately had the option then to you know, stay on full time as in the personal care group, or they also offered me full time in the agriculture group. So I got the opportunity to come on full time and then ultimately got promoted. Um, I think I got promoted three weeks before I told I left. (laughs) Actually, it was kind of funny timing. But, you know, I gained so much more in that experience. and I built a lot more relationships there. And I'm just still in contact with people that I worked with there that I think it really just kind of grounded me. I learned a lot more about not just science from doing it, but also just kind of business and gave me more perspective coming into a tech spec role or a patent agent role where you have to kind of understand a little bit of your client's business on top of just the science. So that extra year or so really kind of helped give me some more context. Um, It helped me hone my skills um, and be able to kind of figure out how to balance your science. You know, I think prosecution really depends on you using your science in a way that you can communicate and understand people's ideas and their business. So I think that year really kind of made a difference. And I I think I'd be in a completely different place had I not, had I gotten the role right when I started or first tried. And I have a question for you about that, because as you listen to Kim and how she had her support system, so to speak, when maybe things didn't work out exactly according to what she had as a checklist, I know you don't have as robust of a checklist per se, Who did you turn to when things didn't work out exactly as you planned and you sort of had to deal with the disappointment of it? I think I primarily turned uh, over to my family. I think I I have a big family. I'm one of four girls. I'm the youngest of four girls. And my parents are super supportive. I think they've kind of always been who I turn to. My dad, who is a lawyer, who should be retiring, but he will never retire. Um, (laughs) I don't even care if he hears that. He uh, always has been supportive and kind of just his advice to me that I've carried with me forever is to ride the wave. That's what he's always said. 
whenever anything goes wrong, you, he's, you know, it happens for a reason, just kind of ride the wave and you'll end up where you are, where you're meant to be with some more hard work and just dedication. So I would say I probably mostly turn to him and my sisters and my and my mother. And in your quest for kind of being the best and just striving for excellence, how has the fact that you have three sisters played into that? You know, we have always been, we're a little competitive, but we're also all so different that, you know, we're not really stepping on each other's toes because we're all kind of trying to do our own thing. I think my oldest sister and I are very type A, uh, like to get things done the way we want everything done the way we want it to be done. My middle two sisters who are just as hardworking and just as awesome are a little bit more relaxed and kind of more kind of play with the punches, roll with the punches. So I think having the sisters has really kind of pushed me. I think just to be my best self and to understand that we all measure success differently. I think they just kind of encourage me to do what I need to do for myself. And my path's going to be different from theirs, but we all kind of push each other to just do our best and be our best selves. Yeah. And it's interesting for me. And then I'll turn it over to Kim because I know she has a sister who's older. I have two brothers. One of my brothers was one grade ahead of me. He's a year and a half older. And my younger brother is a year and eight months younger than me and was two grades behind me. And we had a lot of sibling rivalry. And for me as a girl, it was, you know, you're seven years old. You throw like a girl. Well, I am a girl, you know, so it was a very different dynamic. And Kim, I'd be curious for you with an older sister, how how this resonates, what Mary's saying with you. Okay, so let me put that out there for everyone. I'm the baby of the family. So that means I do it my way. I, I throw a fit, you know what I mean? But <laughs> but the good thing about, and usually I go and run tell daddy. Yes, I am that type. Um, I do. Da- like, a daddy's I girl? Mary, I'm curious <laughs> all day long. I'm, I'm curious, Mary, about the role that your, your father has played in your career choice. And also um, just viewing him as an attorney, watching how he balances everything And what lessons you learned from there that allowed you, which transitions us also to another big topic, you to work by day and go to law school by night during a period. So I know I I included a lot, but we can unpack that step by step if you want. Sure. Well, and I would be remiss to not mention my mother in all this, too, because she is a teacher. So I kind of view she's she's always been a first grade teacher. I think she started when I was in first grade. She started kind of in second, first grade teaching. So I think. I kind of like to view my path as the perfect kind of combination of both of them because I initially started out before I jumped into law as an adjunct professor. I enjoyed kind of the teaching side of it. Um, And I'm also fusing my dad. My dad's a trial lawyer. He's not an IP or any way related to science. So I just kind of think of a perfect kind of blend of them um, has kind of led me to where I am. But, you know, my dad is extremely hardworking. I mean, he's a trial lawyer would be and I don't think I really appreciated that growing up because, you know, he always was present. We played softball, played all the sports. I was big in theater and choir in high school. So and he was always there. Both of them were always there. But he was extremely hardworking. I remember he'd be working in the evenings, you know, just reading briefs in his recliner chair and, you know, I def- I don't think I ever really appreciated how much time he really put into that and how much time it takes to raise four girls to be as strong as we are and independent and, you know, successful. So I think always been really hardworking. And, you know, maybe some of that was a subconscious, you know, him subconsciously training or picking that up from him. 
to me, doing law school, everyone talks about how doing law school at night and working full time is so much. And to me, I feel like it's just normal. I think I'm always saying I always say yes, and I always do too much. So I think I'm used to doing a little bit too much. But, you know, I was working. I'm always kind of balancing two things. So when I was working at Step In, I maybe worked there for a couple months with just work would come home at 5 p.m. and be done for the day. But then I took on the adjunct role and I was doing that maybe twice a week in the evenings, plus the grading of lab reports. And then, you know, I stopped teaching and then I started studying for the LSAT in the evenings when I was working there. So I'm always kind of doing something all day. I have never had a job where I come home and kind of like put my feet up at 5 p.m. and just relax. And so that to me feels weird. I'm not great at relaxing. And that's something I'm personally working on. Uh, I, <laughs> well, you know, you have two other type A women on this phone who don't know how to relax. I think I can speak for Kim in that way. So uh, that certainly oh. resonates with us. You know, one of the things I think is really great that your dad, as someone who is a really busy trial attorney, took that time to come to your activities. Do you have any sense of how he was able to balance that? I couldn't tell you. I think he just what you know knew how to work his schedule to get and plan his day to get things done you know when trials were coming up he'd wake up at 4 a.m go to the office and we wouldn't see him before school um he'd have late nights but he was always there i don't ever remember him skipping on a softball game or a concert or performance for for work and you know thinking about that now i don't think i ever really appreciated that really until this moment talking about it well, it sounds to me like he took what your activities were and your sister's activities as a priority, and then he worked his job around it, which is absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Do you have any fond memories of perhaps as a child going to his office and kind of seeing seeing that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that was like a playground. We would go after, you know, I we always would go kind of on the weekends or in the evenings when pretty much everyone was gone. But me and my sisters would run around the entire office, pick up someone's desk, pick up their phone. And like, we'd say, call me on, you know, this extension. And we'd call each other. Or he always would carry one thing I think that helped with his efficiency is he always had a recorder, you know, a dictaphone to record his briefs and things for his assistance type up, um, which is, I think, is a dying skill. And some people still, you know, swear by it. I've never tried it, but he would do that. And so we would leave him messages on his dictaphone and he would, you know, I think he would find those later. Um, I wonder if he still has some of those tapes because we would just play around with those, play around with the phones, run through the offices. It was, yeah, it was, a ch- I felt like a playground. <laughs> but so, so what I'm taking away from all of this and mind you, I have a pen in my hand. I am scribbling down notes furiously. All of this is so rich and so great. I'm learning from your dad right now, right? <laughs> Looking at your face, the listeners, of course, can't see you, but let me tell you, listeners, what I'm seeing. Mary's face is so bright when she's thinking of her dad and and telling us these stories. Her eyes are just shining. She is absolutely, it's clear she has very pleasant memories of that time. Um, And it's a message to me and maybe some of our listeners that we have to, even though we're balancing all of these um, different, you know, the uh, preparing for a case and um, just getting everything done day to day, make it fun for the kids. I mean, they didn't. Your dad didn't turn you away from the law. You embraced the law based on the experience. Oh, I absolutely love it. So, so I know he was thrilled. I'm sure when he found out. Tell us about that moment. Yes. Um. So I'm I'm the youngest, also the baby. So you know I'm a daddy's girl as well. But yeah. So I'm the only one of us to have gone to law school. 
So I think, you know, I was his last shot. Um, and I think he's very, I think he's really happy. And I know he's very proud of me. And I know both my parents are. Two of my sisters are educators or in the education system. So my mom has that connection with them. I think he was very, very excited to have, have at least one of us follow in his footsteps. Well, one thing I know is that you also wanted to go to medical school originally. Can you talk a little bit about that and how you moved away from going to medical school? Yeah. I mean, what 18-year-old goes to study science and doesn't want to go to medical school after university, right? (laughs) That just seems, you know, the path. Anyways, yeah. So I started out as a bio major and a Spanish minor. And I did my first year with my gen bio and gen chem and just did not like bio I felt like it was just rote memorization of, you know, the parts of a plant. And I was like, I don't care. But I really liked chemistry. And that was a shock to me because I had thought I was going to be a bio person. I don't know why. I just kind of felt like that was what I was what I was going to do. And I liked the more analytical aspects of chemistry. And I liked doing math, which was surprising to me because I tested out of college calculus from high school and I hated calculus in high school. I was just so glad to have gotten the credits to be done. But it turns out I really enjoyed math. And especially, you know, I graduated with my specialty was in analytical and physical chemistry and physical chemistry is all calculus. And I ended up also with a bio or with a math minor. So it just kind of really was a shock to me when I got to got to college and realized that I had completely different idea going in than I actually found to be when I got there. So yeah, so I I think around maybe my junior, senior year, I still had no idea what I wanted to do for a career. I thought, I, you know, I'm getting a degree in science. I have to do something. You know, I have to either go be a, a chemist in a pharmaceutical company or go to med school. To me, those were the only options. I was like, how else do you use a science degree other than be a scientist? And I knew even then in the back of my head that I didn't really want to be a scientist but I felt like that was the only way I could do anything else is if I did a few years of kind of lab work. And we're all nodding our heads on this uh, with Mary because Kim and I, it definitely resonates with us. Yeah. And so I also, you know, at that point, I think I was like, OK, well, let's let's try med school. Let's think about that, because I also wanted to be an OBGYN, Kim. And I remember that from yours. And I and I kindred spirits. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> I heard that. And I literally I was walking my dog that day listening to your episode and I just started laughing. I was just like, this is insane. But anyway, I talked to a professor about the MCAT. You know, at that point, I still was not fully convinced. I was just like, I'm going to do it because feels like that's what I needed to do. Um, but I really wasn't thrilled with the idea of more school and more training. And, you know, at that point, especially when it's all scientific kind of I was kind of ready to be done with science training. I did not want to do a Ph.D. That I think it was that Christmas I came home for the holidays and my mom had gotten me a bunch of MCAT study books for for a present. And I opened them and I started crying. And I, I was like bawling at Christmas. Not the reaction she expected, I'm sure. She's like, oh no, what did I do? I was just like, I don't want to do this. And she's like, it's okay, we'll return them, we'll return them. And that was the end of my med school dreams. So then I graduated. Well, I was, I, at that time then, I still didn't know. So I applied for DePaul does a five-year BS MS program. So I was like, okay, I'm going to do the MS program. I'll get a, I got a graduate fellowship, which paid for my tuition and you know, I got paid a stipend to do, you know, TA classes. Um, so I was like, this will buy me another year to kind of figure out what I want. 
And so that was the end of that. And then ultimately I went to the chemical company after graduation for my master's. So what was uh, the, the reaction of your mom in particular who had given you the AMCAT books for Christmas? Well, I think she was probably a, a confused and also a little upset. And, you know, she's like, how did I get this so wrong? But I really hadn't give her any signs before that 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 wasn't what I wanted because I thought it was. And I think getting the presents was like or getting those books. I was just like, nope, not for me. And I think she was just kind of confused and just she I don't think she took it personally. I think she was just like, oh, my God, I'm sorry. I didn't know. I felt so bad after the fact. I was just like, oh, my God, because, you know, I think they've always done so well, you know, been such good providers that I think she probably was just like, how did I miss the mark? But, you know, that was probably my fault for not really telling her. Well, and it's hard. Yeah. And in retrospect, I mean, think about that moment, how it was it allowed you to pursue something different. Right. That moment allowed you to wake up and say, you know what, I just I can't do this. I do not want to do this. My heart isn't in in it. So I think that was the best gift ever that your mom gave. Yeah, (laughs) I agree. I agree. It was a wake up call. I think free, you know, freedom more than, you know, freedom. Maybe, maybe I wasn't already, maybe I wasn't convinced I was going to do it, but I probably would have done it because that's who I am and I'll work hard and do it if, you know, I think that's what I need to do, even if my heart's not in it. So I think it was kind of a freeing moment to be like, okay, I'm okay with now with this decision. Everyone else in my life is okay with this decision. They're not going to, you know, force me to do something that I don't want to do. So. Yeah, so it's sort of like epiphany moments that you have. And you know what I think really is funny is that we have three women right now on this podcast who all thought that they were going to be scientists and are now and particularly thought you were going to go to medical school. And we all are going to be lawyers because Matt Mirror will be graduating soon. I wonder if there's a podcast out there of people who thought that they were going to be lawyers who now are, are doctors. Just just throwing that out there. If, if there are any of those listeners, let us know about it. Oh, gosh, I love that. Love. Mary, I'd like to now turn to the excellent piece that we referenced earlier that really has started this public conversation. Can you explain to the listeners what inspired you to write the piece in the first place? Sure. Well, that was a school assignment. (laughs) I was in um, an advanced IP class that was a seminar um, academic writing type class, advanced upper level writing. Um, And so we, you know, I went into this class and then, you know, read the syllabus and I saw the, the entire grade was basically, you know, pick an issue with an IP and write a paper on it um, and turn it in. And so that's how the whole thing started. When coming about up to with topics, um, you know, this was probably when I started formulating the idea, maybe in, you know, March, April of 2020. Um, and there's a lot going on in that time within our world. And I think I just didn't want to do something hard IP. I didn't want to write about Alice. I didn't write want to write about, you know, these really technical nuanced issues because while I appreciate the law. I want, I'm a lot more passionate about some of more of these intangible um, soci- sociology sort of dynamics within the space. Um, and I also have been, well, when I was at Marshall Gerstein, I was on the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee because I've always just been passionate about the, those issues within law and, and generally and within STEM and everything. So sitting in those meetings and going to, com- going to you know, webinars and things about women and and race and law, I just started thinking about 
how everyone always blames, you know, why why aren't we hiring minorities? Why aren't we hiring women on pipeline problems? You know, oh, we can't hire these because they're just not there. You know, they're not there. We need to get more people, minorities and women in STEM. And until we do that, we're not going to solve the problems. And I just got really kind of sick of that excuse. To me, it was not satisfying. It was not true. It was not, you know, it just didn't sit right. So I started looking. I can't remember how I came up with this specific idea, but I, you know, I was thinking about, you know, what kind of science are women doing? And then I just kind of compared with the the pan bar requirements because I had heard, we've all heard those stories of people with like an, a little bit of an esoteric degree, not a traditional chemistry degree or a traditional biology degree that had issues with the patent bar or getting accepted to, to take the patent bar exam. We've all heard those stories. And so I was just like, hey, what else can we do other than focus on the root cause of women and men or women and minorities in STEM and solve this issue in a different way, or at least, you know, plug a hole um, in the pipeline so we can get more people in this profession. And so that's kind of where the idea came from to do this. Yeah, it's amazing because uh, Kim and I, I think we talked about it when we had our introductory episode. We looked at it, you know, I'm a a women's college graduate. She's a graduate of an HBCU. So we kind of thought about it in that way. And you're right. Some The way that the degrees are written in what is in category A right now, and I mean no disrespect to someone who, for example, is a ceramics engineer, but it almost to me looked like they went to like a Cornell catalog of engineering and kind of pulled a bunch of degrees back in the day, um, mm-hmm. which does exclude things. You know, my my major was biological sciences for undergrad. So biological sciences. And even the the new category A that recommendations, it's called biological science. So it technically Still not exactly the same. Ex- exactly. And so you figure liberal arts colleges, women's colleges, perhaps even HBCUs. You know, I've even interviewed students who are at Vanderbilt where they have the technical expertise, but the name of the major is just different than you might get at a state school or, or you know, a school like Cornell, for example. So then when you started getting into it, can you can you explain the process of how you started to put the piece together? Yeah. So first, I knew that I was if I was going to do this, I needed to have evidence. Like I needed to have numbers. Um, so I started just kind of looking at um, you know the the statistics about what degrees women are pursuing, what the what the ratios are, because obviously it's an exclusive system overall, right? It's exclusive to only these people, whether they're men, women, black, white, or, you know, it's inherently exclusive, right? That's the, and, and, and I understand the reason for that. You know, I understand that this is to protect inventors and ensure that they're getting good quality in their patent practitioners. But in researching, I just started to see how arbitrary the lines were and how internally inconsistent the lines were. Where, for example, you know, I highlighted in my paper, you could have, a, again, not, you know, denigrating anyone with a textile engineering degree, but you could have a textile engineering degree that doesn't even satisfy or that gets through category A that does not satisfy the criteria of category B, which is the fallback, right? So it just didn't make a lot of sense. And and I never had a problem with the system as it's set up. I just had a problem with making it fair and up to date and current. You know, these these are such so outdated. It's 2021. People are learning science in so many different ways than just a traditional bachelor's degree, right? Uh, people learn through 
their own independent work um, that and and I think there's a lot more to the job than just knowing the science, right? You know, I'm a chemist. I have a master's in chemistry, master's in chemistry. But like, I don't know. The whole point of it being innovation is that you don't it's brand new. So it's, you know, a lot of the time you have you, you have I understand having the foundation of science, but I don't know exactly my inventors, you know, invention. I have to learn, too. So I think more of it is you have this, you know, passion for learning and challenging yourself and doing independent research. We all have to do our own research to kind of bring ourselves up to speed on the topic or the science before we can really talk with inventors in a meaningful way. So I think that's the more important skill. I know some people in the in the conversations have kind of talked about let's get rid of the system and just say any attorney in good standing can do it. And I and I agree with that to an extent, but I also having been a patent agent I worry that that would kind of, you know, get rid of the whole patent agent side of it if we required it just to be an attorney in good standing, unless unless we added it in addition to that, where patent agents could still exist and then any attorney in good standing. So I think there's a lot of ways to think about it. And I'm really excited by the conversation of just people having a ton of different ideas that I never had that are way better than I had to make it better. Because looking back now and having talked to enough people, I realized like my solutions that I propose are very moderate. Like they're not that extreme, you know, they're like expand category A, which we're, you know, in talks of doing or, you know, kind of rework category B and things like that. So. So what I would say about the solutions that you propose is that they caught the attention of those who can make the changes because they're realistic solutions that you propose. You didn't go for something so extreme that they said, you know what, this is not possible. We're never going to be able to do this. Door is shut. Don't even reopen it. You've opened the door for the further expansion. So own that, number one. Second question, well, first question I have for you, second comment. Did you get an A in that class? I mean, I did. I know you did. (laughs) After all of, you know, the, the publicity that has been generated around it and to get responses from um, the patent office uh, after the senators demanded to hear more about this. Okay, so I'm glad. I'm happy with your professor that they realized the importance of your work. But I want to touch on something that you mentioned early on about your initial exposure to patent law. So you had the background needed to check the boxes, as I like to say, so that you qualified but it was an issue of exposure for you, right? It was Mm -hmm. that moment when your friend said, hey, this option is out here. Mm -hmm. Mary, what can we do as practitioners to make sure that we're exposing others? Um, So so be it the the undergraduate student realizing that I don't want to be a doctor or a dentist, or should we even target earlier in the process so that we can alert everyone about this alternative career to being a medical doctor? I think it's both. I mean, I think that's the biggest thing is from a lot of the conversations I've had with people, it's this is a career you kind of fall into. It's not a career you go start undergrad thinking, oh, I'm going to go be a patent attorney. You know, there are people that are like that, but they have been exposed to it, right? So if you're going to go and be a scientist, because you want to do science, this is not a career really on your radar. So I think it's both exposing, you know, younger people, you know, maybe in high school or middle school about these jobs, um, which is, you know, something we all have to work on together to do. And also just being more present, present in universities, because 
quite frankly, at least in my experience, I felt that my professors who had gone, you know, to academia, they'd gotten their PhDs and then gone back to be professors. They have a limited, you know, you look at them as an undergraduate and you're like, they, they're all knowing, they know everything, but you think they don't, you know, they, I'm not to denigrate any of my professors. I love them all, but like they all kind of follow the same path, right? So they don't, and they know med school is an option, but they, I never heard this from any professor that patent law was an option. The first time I heard about it was, I think my polymer chemistry class in grad school, where my professor mentioned that you could be an expert witness at, in a patent trial. And that was the first time I had ever heard about patents um, in class. So it's just something that's not promoted or, and I don't know the reason for that. So I think that's something the whole system needs to work collectively to do. Well, it's interesting because I didn't even have an idea about patent law until I was in graduate school and I had decided I wanted to go to law school. And one of the postdocs sort of off the cuff said, oh, you could go be a patent lawyer. And I I didn't even know what that meant. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, sounds great. Um, You know, one of the other things, too, that um, to your point and maybe to Tim's question is I'd been thinking about it in conjunction with this is now going back to my college, which is a women's college with I think it's 28 or more percent of the graduates have STEM degrees and doing a presentation on a panel to expose them to the option of having patent law as a career, because I certainly wasn't aware of that. Um, And I think maybe things like that and going earlier in the pipeline, even if it's science fairs, uh, would be, you know, a great way for us to try to work this out. And that kind of makes me want to pivot to, I don't think we even need to name who the author is or what the publication is, but someone equated this movement to lowering the bar. Do you have any comments to that? I will just say I have never suggested lowering the bar. I have only talked about expanding it to increase access to this inherently exclusive system. And none of my suggestions would you know, compromise the system or compromise the quality. You know, I, I think, you know, people who criticized it initially up front, maybe, you know, I, I hope that they would read the whole thing, but, you know, maybe they saw something that they disagreed with and kind of, I feel like their eyes glazed over in fury and just kind of missed some of the finer points that, you know, of course, a lot of my solutions would increase access to men too. I'm not saying, I never suggested that you know, my solutions would solve the gender gap where it's going to increase the number of men as well as women applying. And that was kind of my goal. You know, as long as we're increasing access so more women and minorities can kind of get in um, with less burden of going through category B. Um, I've just so many stories about, I mean, I think we've all heard those of just like how hor- especially when you've, you've been a scientist or been out of school for you know, five, 10 years, like going back to get catalogs from the same year that you took a class um, to submit to the patent office to just prove it's just mind boggling. So, of course, I'm not suggesting lowering the bar. Of course, I'm not suggesting we um, make it easier. And, you know, well, I damn suggest we make it easier. Let me say that. But you know what I mean? I'm not suggesting we lower the bar to lower any standards just to get women in the door. So I think those are just kind of unfounded and off the cuff statements that aren't true or aren't supported by my article. Well, and two two points I have to that. One person I talked to who's male who works at our firm is a colleague. He went to Tulane and because of Katrina, all of the course documents that he would be able to use to fit into category B have been 
completely uh, demolished. So he has no ability to go back and actually do that to your point. And the other thing that really resonates with me is I know you had talked about nursing and I believe the article I'm referring to said something to the effect of, I don't think anybody who's a patent practitioner would be okay with someone with a nursing degree having the ability to take the patent bar. Well, I'm a registered patent attorney and I have no issue with a woman with a nursing degree or man (laughs) eligible to take the patent bar. So it was a very interesting point. Yeah. My take on your proposals and the whole note, it, it just further shows your devotion to client service. In my opinion, you are aimed on pairing the best possible practitioner with the inventors who need that specific expertise to make sure that their idea is effectively protected. That's how I viewed your proposal. I'm like, you're protecting our inventors out there and making right. sure that they get the service that they deserve. So again, kudos to you. I am so happy that you have thick skin and can ignore comments that just don't apply. And you realize that, you know what? I get it. You don't fully understand what I'm, what my angle is here and that's okay. But here's my angle. Such a better response than what I would have given. So yeah, well, (laughs) right. And it's, it's so funny because. You know, based on the story that I've told, I think it's clear that I never intended this. I didn't even think this was going to be published, right? I didn't even go into this like thinking about what kind of criticism I get because I never thought, you know, anyone would read it. Um, And so at first, I think that, you know, I think the criticism kind of hurt me a little bit. But also, I think I got enough positive feedback that really kind of made me, you know, reframe it. As soon as I, you know, I read the article and I was like, oh, this sucks. And then you read like the 200 comments and you're like, oh, this sucks even more. But then you see the people that are on your side and kind of are a lot stronger and make a lot more valid points than the people that were upset by it. Um, it just, it, it's a whirlwind. That whole, the the couple months after it published was just like, what? This is unbelievable. Like getting people emailing me, you know, April email me, people email me, like people I've never would ever have crossed path, paths with. So I think that kind of outweighs all the the negativity of it all. To, to Kim's point and to some things that you said earlier, I mean, you really have created this momentum. I mean, think about it. You were, I think we were 29 at the time that this was happening, just now 30. You have senators writing to the patent office, quoting from your article, demanding chains. And then you have the director of the USPTO responding to that letter saying that there's going to be, you know, an investigation or work that's going to be done to look into this issue. And now you have the Federal Register having the comments that are, by the way, anybody who's listening, I believe the date is May 24th for submitting comments. So we would absolutely recommend everybody to do so. Um, and we will put the link to that in our show notes. But you have now this, this there's movement to change the category A and comment on it, which our firm is going to do. I know your prior firm is going to do so as well. I mean, how do you feel about all of this that you you have created? It's just phenomenal to me. Like I said, as someone who's you know 26 years ahead of you in your career and you have the rest of your career ahead of you. It's unbelievable. I mean, with with all the, you know, all the emails I got, the craziest one was to get one from Senator Hirono's counsel. And so because before they wrote the letter, I I spoke with her counsel and he he's great. And he was like, OK, this is what I think we're going to do, because he he was a former IP litigator as well before this. So he kind of appreciated, appreciated the issue. And it's right up her alley as well. So 
he told me kind of how that all happened with, I think it was the Lost 360 article that came out right when my draft from SSRN published or was released, right? So I think my professor had encouraged me to publish. He's like, hey, post a draft on SSRN so that I can at least send out that link to you know my people to kind of get their feedback and you get kind of credit for having views or things if you ever you know wanted to be a professor or something. So I posted it there and then a few months later, it was released. And that's when the first Law 360 article came out. And that he told me, the Senator Hirono's counsel told me <clears throat> that that article and that link to my draft was passed to him from Senator Tillis's counsel and was like, hey, I think Senator Hirono is going to be really interested in this. And so that kind of caused that whole thing to tumble. And so I spoke with him for about an hour, you know, end of September, I want to say. And then he was like, I think she's going to write a letter. He kind of kept me involved in the whole process. I reviewed a draft of the letter before they sent it to the director and all of that. So it was really cool to be a part of that. And I remember sitting at my phone, I think it was on a Friday afternoon, just looking at my email and my jaw just dropped. I looked at my boyfriend. I was like, look at this email. I just like couldn't believe it. I mean, I really couldn't believe it because this was a class, a paper that I wrote for class and I just wanted an A. So it was just, it's just crazy. The life it's taken. Oh, I love it. Yeah, no, and that's amazing. I know Senator Hirono, she's an, an attorney herself and is very mm-hmm. involved in making sure women's issues are addressed and whatnot. But I think it's fabulous that you have this bipartisan committee, uh, subcommittee on intellectual mm-hmm. property, really moving this forward and demanding action. And it's all because of you. Yeah, it's it's wild. I mean, it is because of this paper, right? But I relied on so many resources of people that came before me. And people have been talking about this for years. I mean, the study that I cited about the gender gap was from 2014 or something like maybe 2013, 2014. So people have been talking about it and they deserve just as much credit. I think that my paper just had like came at the perfect time. I think that was the timing was really the key aspect to this whole thing. And, you know, their work is just as phenomenal and should be referenced just as much as mine is because they've, you know, really pinpointed the issue and talked about kind of how this these changes really will advance the ball in the whole innovative system and that's kind of what the USPTO is working on as a whole right with the within the invent, getting diversity and in inventorship as well i think we need to have it on both sides inventorship and the patent bar to really get there but you definitely seized the moment and and it the article that i believe you're referring to from 2014 is what i went back to look at to see what the statistics were in terms of the percentage of women who were members of the patent bar back when I took it in 2002, which was around 20%. Was it surprising to you to see that it hasn't really changed very much since the late 80s up until now, 2021? I mean, I wish it was surprising, but I guess I'm not that surprised when you look at the statistics of women in law more generally. You see minority women are not that those numbers, minority attorneys generally has not really advanced in any meaningful way. You know, just the same way with diversity and ventureship hasn't raised. I think they said the USPTO said it went it's an all time high of 13.2 percent or something like that. I'm probably butchering the number. But so I wish I was surprised. But honestly, I, I don't think I was that surprised that I hadn't changed that much, especially because the criteria haven't changed. Right. So to your point. So, so now I'm curious, um, what's next for Mary, right? So, and, and just know that I, I've gotten a small snippet into what your future holds in typical Mary fashion. You're expanding, 
right? Your skill set. So tell, tell our listeners about what we can look forward to from you. Oh my gosh. I have a lot of goals, a career goals, very lofty goals that I don't think will ever, you know, are realistic, but you know, I still, I still think about them. Um, so I'll be starting as an associate. I'm, I'm switching to IP litigation. Yes. Don't, we don't got hate her. me. Don't we hate, got well, her. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. I've, you know, I've done four years of prosecution um, and I do enjoy prosecution. I just kind of want to try also uh, just try litigation. Um, and so I'll be going to Sidley and working in their IP litigation group and we'll see how it goes. I'm really excited to kind of get some new opportunities. Obviously, I'm going to stay busy, I'm sure, between work and then I'll find something else to kind of fill in whatever gap time I have left. You know, I'm looking to maybe clerk um, eventually. I don't know exactly where, if that's going to be kind of a district court level or maybe a federal circuit or we'll see. So I have a lot of career goals and ambitions. I think this it's it's crazy that I yeah like him or April said I haven't even started. I'm I'm excited. I guess I don't I don't know what's what's to come, but I'll keep pushing through. Love it, love it, love it, and and so fearless. Right, the thought of leaving the safety net, net if you will, of what you've been doing the last four years and venturing out. I mean, because think about it, you could start as an associate. And I'm not trying to change you back over to prosecution. Yeah, can we, can we got her for now? We got her for now. So let's let's let her do it. Okay, so I'll end on that note. But just keep in mind. That, that's an awesome skill set. But no, I love, love, love everything about what you just said. Um, you planted some seeds. Well, and I just have to say, I mean, to, for Sidley, they're so lucky to have you coming in, just not only because of this moment that we're in and what you've done to really help move the ball forward, but just you're just an outstanding woman with your whole legal career ahead of you. And I'm just so absolutely excited for you. You know, I really hope that 20, 25 years from now, we don't have to be having this discussion anymore. I I actually think about one of our colleagues, Ann Tang. She has a little daughter who's, I think, was eight. And she went to a Halloween party dressed as a pilot. And someone said, you know, you're dressed like a boy. And she said, no, I'm dressed like a pilot. You know, and I'm hoping that the little girls are going to start to realize that they can be empowered. And, you know, your generation certainly has been able to do that, I think, more than mine as a Gen Xer. And I'm just hoping from the generations forward that we'll really be able to do that. I can't even tell you how much we have appreciated having your time. Mary, you found your voice, right? Be it intentionally or unintentionally, you found it and you are using it. What advice do you have for those who haven't yet found their voice or are afraid to fully express what they need to to be heard in this world? That's a tough question. You know, I think I think you've just gotta, you know, trust your instincts and do what you need to do for yourself. I think five years ahead from now, if you had this opportunity and you didn't jump on it, how would you think about that? You know, how would you it would suck to, you know, be if you have the perfect time and the perfect moment in front of you and you're too nervous to take it, you're gonna regret that later. And so Again, mine was very unintentional to get where I am, but I'm so grateful for having done this and, you know, having listened to my professor who encouraged me to publish. And I could have easily just said, no, that's like too much work to have to kind of work and tweak and revise the article. I just wrote this for class. Like it could have been done and dead there. And then where would we be? We wouldn't have this podcast, for example. So, so I think you just got to kind of trust yourself and trust your instincts 
and trust the people around you. Ask ask the people you admire for for feedback and see, you know, kind of what they think and kind of take that, you know, if it's negative feedback, take it with a grain of salt. Don't let that stop you. So I guess that's my, I feel like such an imposter. I have such an imposter syndrome with this whole thing, you know? So I don't know, like for me to give advice to people, it just seems so crazy to me because, you know, it just kind of fell in my lap. I feel like I didn't do anything to get here. And a lot of it, well, you know, I, I mean, I wrote the paper and I put it out there, but then everything that's come since has just kind of been like, I've been passive in the whole thing, right? People have been reaching out to me and I've just been like, okay, yeah, let's talk. So, so it's just kind of crazy to be in this position now where I'm being asked this question, to be honest. <laughs> well, and I think it just goes to your humility and we always perceive ourselves differently than others do, right? Because I reach out to you and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I feel like I just landed the Oprah guest. And you know, you're just kind of like, oh, I'm just doing me. So it's just just a really phenomenal thing. And I cannot tell you enough how inspiring you are um, to people throughout different generations and that you've really helped move the ball forward. I have hope for the future and you are so inspirational and I know you are humble and don't even realize it, but you truly have inspired so many people to start really having the dialogue. And I can say even on our end, the men within our firm or friends of ours that are men listening to the podcast and appreciating this dialogue that we're having in this moment was all started because of the work that you put forward in this moment. So thank you so much for your time. I know we will keep in touch with you. As Kim mentioned, I know you're going to have an absolutely fabulous career. I can't wait to watch it as it unfolds. And uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh my gosh. Thank you guys for having me. I'm just so honored to be here, both April and Kim. I've loved it. I'm excited to have friends for lives with you guys. So thank you. Oh my goodness. I'm a fan. I'm a fan. (laughs) I'm a fan. I'm a fan of you guys. (laughs) Well, and you know, even just like, it's one of the things I talked to you about, Mary, and I know Kim and, and, and others we've talked about it is I look at it as women, we're here to support each other. You know, I don't look at you as working at as a different firm, as a competitor. It's like, it's the, it's the sisterhood of the tribe and anything we can do to make each other's career better or people's lives better. I just think that that's, that's uh, really important. And you certainly are making that happen. Yeah. And that's so big for me too. I'm really excited to like, kind of just have the opportunity to talk with you guys and know that I could come talk to you, ask you questions about, okay, what do I do? Yeah. Oh yeah. You're, you're stuck with us now. Yeah. Yeah. Anytime. Feel free to reach out and I'll be bugging you too. (laughs) Yes. Seriously. Same. Just reach out. I mean, even if you just need a chat, I don't know. Yeah. That's why I look at it as this is like a sisterhood and then we've just created some new bonds and you're a relationship person. So are we, and we'll just keep those relationships growing and we can grow our tribe. So thank you again. Really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed Sidebars, we invite you to check out the Kilpatrick Townsend Medicine and Molecules blog at kilpatricktownsend.com to read, watch, and listen to other related insight on patent law. We'll also put that information in the show notes. The opinions expressed on this podcast are our own and are not those of Kilpatrick Townsend. Also, we would love it if you would rate us or leave a review. It helps others find the show. See you next time.